Welcome back to 730. Here's part two of my conversation with Jewel Hall. What was your early educational experiences like? I know you allude to it in the film, but how did that shape your perspective or value of education growing up? Well, I always loved education. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I was the kid who who was coming home from school wanting to do his homework. Uh, growing up in Brownsville, however, I learned pretty early that I needed to not show that I liked education. It was a degree of uh, of uh, harassing people who uh, were the nerds or a scenario that occurred often in my life. Uh, a group of uh, guys and girls would be uh, plotting to cut school and I'm the one who was like, no, I want to go to school. You look <laughs> odd. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I always liked education. Um, however, my experience in the public school system was terrible. Uh, I remember I used to read the front, the middle, and the back end of the book, and I was I would pass. There was times I remember my teacher told me this once. I used to cut school a lot, you know, and I would go back to class and still be able to engage the material, you know. Uh, this is something that I recognize as my intellectual gift. I have a, a thing for learning quickly. Um, and my teacher would say something. She said, Jewel, you, you weren't in this class for 30 days, but you come back to class still prepared to do this stuff. People who've been in the class all this time aren't there. So, you right. know, however, again, I was able to just slide through without being challenged. You know, and I think that's the challenge of our public school system is to not just teach one level, <clears throat> excuse me, of, of, of learning for everyone. There are people in the classes who are somewhat lower or somewhat higher. I, you know, I position myself as one of those, the kids who is able to, you know, get it quick. And I don't think the school was able to uh, engage you. Yeah, engage me. I remember I used to have to literally be a class clown because I wanted the teacher's attention, you know? So otherwise they knew, oh, Jewel knows the answer. I'm not going to call on him. I had to like act up. Right. <laughs> Jewel, you know the answer? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. But um, yeah, it was uh, it was different, you know? Um, I wasn't challenged until I really got into Bard to see what a challenging education could be. So what, what was that experience and process like, like getting into Bard? Uh, it was so it was so profound on so many levels. Whether we want to talk about reentry, whether we want to talk about uh, just the intellectual engagement, uh, the circle. I think the circle is something that we used in the classrooms as well. That had a, a way in which we became a democratic classroom. It wasn't that hierarchy of the teacher in the front, and. You know, we face the teacher and call and response. No, the teacher was sitting in a circle with us. We all came prepared with the material ready to, to engage. The teacher, of course, would guide the discussion, but, you know, it was a level of autonomy that was expected from us. We had to, like, come with our own. So um, it was great. Um, it was hard. I remember uh, Daniel Kopowitz, you know, he had a profound impact on my life. Uh, he was a bar professor. Uh, he used to tell me, Jewel, you're the type that uh, you can't get comfortable. You do your best work when you're uncomfortable. Yeah, when I'm challenged. Yeah. When I'm put in those situations to say, okay, this is a lot, or I don't understand this, I push myself to try to learn and understand it. And I'm fortunate that I'm able to, uh, you know, come out on top more often than not. 
from what I understand with the application process, you have to write an essay, right? Yeah. Do, oh. do you remember what you wrote the essay on? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't remember specifically, but I have, uh, uh, I remember I went through a process very competitive. There was, uh, I think, 75 to 100 people taking this test. Uh, we had to write an essay on the clock. Mind you, I prepared. Uh, not only was I in the uh, GED classes as a tutor, and I would give the teacher sample essays to mark up for me. I, I, I was getting in the bard. Uh, also, uh, I timed myself. I would time myself writing, see how long it took for me to, to write a, a complete essay. Then when I got into the space, I realized, wait a minute, there's a lot of people in this classroom. Again, I used the fact that I was in jail for a while. I sorted three different prompts. They gave us three different prompts. One was like more philosophical, one was socio-political, and another was a poem, a complex poem too. So what I did was I looked around the classroom and said, okay, this person is going to write socio-political. This person is going to write philosophy. Nobody's going to write the poetry. I could stand out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I took the poetry and I remember uh, the poem described, uh, again, I don't remember specifics, but I know it described the bomb that would uh, hit the floor and it, it went, the bomb was this size but it destroyed a bigger portion. People in neighboring neighboring communities were impacted, so it had that uh, ripple effect. Ripple effect, and I, you know, wrote about my situation of, you know, doing wrong and getting caught up in violence as having that same ripple effect that you aren't you aren't really aware of. It you know it starts from one incident. But then somebody's family is impacted, somebody's school is impacted, and it ripples and it ripples. Was there a professor or a teacher that really influenced you? Yeah. And who were they, and like why why did they influence you so much? Well, Daniel Karpowitz was our uh, civic, civics teacher, uh, professor, excuse me. Um, I love civics. But also, um, who you had on the show recently, Dr. Full of Love. Oh, my goodness. Yo, I was listening to your recording with him, and he he tried to, like, give a disclosure. I don't want to, you know, Dr. Full of Love Love talked yeah, about yeah, himself. Yeah, 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 And we love listening. He has been through so many uh, important things that he's teaching us now how to navigate what we're going through. I thank the Lord for, for Dr. Full of Love because— he was one of the first ones who told me when I first got out, Jewel, you know, uh, one of the best ways to resolve criminal justice reform is to give uh, incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people the right to vote. Once we have that, everything will stem from that. And now you got those brothers in Florida and Louisiana that's doing that. So I think that's dope. Shout out to them. Uh, but nonetheless, full of love had this ability to sit us in a classroom and make us solution oriented, not to just think about the problem. How are we going to come up with solutions for these problems? So we, and what I love is that again, there's that autonomous atmosphere where we're all in the classroom as individuals, you know, so we're going to come together to brainstorm, so we're going back and forth, throwing ideas, full of love, is throwing an idea out to challenge us or to push us further. So he has had, even out here, you know, full of love has been such a uh, 
important figure in my life, whether directly I'm fortunate to know him directly and have his counsel in many uh, instances or just hearing him speak. Yeah. <laughs> it's he's, like, wow. He's, he's he knows the, what he's talking about. He's the OG. <laughs> yes. Man, I love that dude. Yeah. I, you know, I was, I was so nervous to interview him. He's actually in a Scholastic News. He, there's a photo of him uh, doing a yeah, doing a protest. Yeah, at, at Miami University. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, wow, yeah. this is in the, the history books. This guy has. I think know, it's like a Smith Smithsonian or something like. It's yeah. in a big museum. Yeah, it's uh, he's been in the trenches, yeah. you know. And now we are blessed to have him as an academic that's still uh, aware of that trajectory. That's what I found so interesting about he, what he was saying because a lot of us are not looking at it from that macro perspective as he is. Right. So we need somebody like that to be able to kind of keep us in the uh, right direction. Yeah, and he <laughs> speaks in a way, you know, many academics don't necessarily do this. And I, I spoke with another academic on Friday, but and I complimented him on the same thing. But you could have... You could be in academia and have language that most people don't have access to. Mm. And therefore, everything that you know, people don't have, all mm. people don't have access to. Yeah. You understand? That's so true. And Bob has a way of framing things where it's like anybody can access it. To me, that's the true testament of an academic that's about people, yeah. you know? And about really getting knowledge out, not just keeping it for, for self. Yeah. Uh, and I felt like Bob really did that. What prompted your interest in studying German, learning German? Like, uh, to this day, I'm like, how the hell? I would never predict or think mm -hmm. that somebody that was behind bars that's from Brownsville would be studying German. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, even growing up, in, in Brownsville, excuse me, I knew the BMW was like the best car. You know, I knew Germany had a level of uh, innovation. There's a number of things that pushed me to it. I remember uh, early on in my, when I was on Rikers Island, guys were saying, look out for those Germans. And I was like, okay. I was like, where the Germans? <laughs> I got in prison. I'm like, we're the Germans. We had a way in which we were labeling Latin people Germans for some reason. I didn't understand that. It goes how we misinterpret things. I think it wow. related to the fact that, you know, I don't know. That's yeah. another story. It's a long story. I, I, I could unpack it, but that just Germany popped out for me then. Before I got in the bar, I was interested in World War II. So I did a lot of research on just self-research on what happened in World War II, who were the people involved. And this is when I got an idea of Germany's technological uh, uh, innovation and the way in which they engage ideas. I was like, wow, that's kind of dope. You know, it was used in a destructive manner, but, you know, to have a society that just kind of prides itself on excellence and being a great, you know, intellect is great. I feel that is something to be looked at. <clears throat> and then when I got into uh, Bard and... We took the German class. What floored me was getting Der Spiegel and seeing uh, a, a person of color on the on the cover as a rapper. I was like, "Wow, look at this! It's black people in Germany rapping," you know. So you know, it just really opened my uh, horizon to understand that there's a way in which Germany has an intellectual 
a legacy as well as a racial legacy that I kind of uh, conflate with or just examine through the lens of America. You know, my senior project dealt with immigration. It dealt with uh, women. Uh, it dealt with race, of course. Uh, so being able to view Germany and understand Germany helped me to understand America to uh, some extent. And there's a relationship there in history as well. In many instances, I didn't know that uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin was the man in Germany. You know, they had a way in which America, the founding fathers, were interacting with Germany even then. Uh, you, we know Wolfgang von Goethe is a man all over the world with his poetry. So there's like these intersections that we are aware of that just was really prominent for me that I wanted to investigate and find out what is this uh, intersections there. And of course, one of the most uh, horrific ones is the eugenics. Eugenics actually started in America and the Germans picked that up and turned it into their uh, uh, <laughs> wicked uh, legacy of, uh, of the Holocaust. Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. So we can talk about all the great things of being mm -hmm. in the, in the bar program. What are some of the challenges that you face being in BPI that maybe the common person might not know about or might not have even been discussed in the film? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I like to bring attention to, I think the film does engage this, how much BPI students have to navigate the identity of being a student versus a prisoner. You know, while you're in there, that is like so prominent. Uh, Daniel Karpowitz did it for me, you know, when I first, in my orientation, once I got in, he he told us all we need to stop looking or now that you're in bar, he didn't say we need to, but he said now that you're in bar, you should look at yourself as a student, part of a larger institution and not just a prisoner. And, you know, I can't stress enough how the identity of a prisoner is a good thing on the inside. It keeps you out of trouble. It makes you understand your relationship to the officers. You know, it's a, a, a good thing to understand, oh, I'm a prisoner. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I should be here. I should follow this rule. But Bard pushed us to think of ourselves as students, and that is a, another uh, thing that we had to constantly navigate day in, day out. Because on the one hand, we're in a classroom with each other, and we're debating, and guys' egos come involved and it's like wait a minute bro I can have a debate with you as a student you know that's unheard of as a prisoner <laughs> you know right. don't question me you, you, got know? A problem. <laughs> you got a problem yeah. you know we had to constantly like whoa wait a minute remember we're students another thing that uh, was uh, central was disrupting my norms and values so in prison we have norms and values one of the things that uh, we uh definitely were averse to uh, people who had crimes against women and children. Now, uh, there were instances where I had to, you know, in Bard say, I don't know what this guy is locked up for. He may be locked up for this or that. I'm not asking him. But nonetheless, I can't bring that to this classroom. While we're in this classroom, he's a student. You know, um, even when I leave and go back, and that's this was the beautiful thing about BPI, we were spread out. Our culture was spread out into the rest of the prison. So now I'm outside in the yard and I might be arguing over a phone and I got to realize there's people out here who say, wait a minute, that's Jewel. Isn't he 
one of the bar members, and he's out here acting like a knucklehead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that's it's a it's a, a constant navigation. But I think another thing, and I guess the film briefly touches this too, is the graduation. Once you graduate, you go right back to a prison cell, and you know they call graduation commencement because it's supposed to start something new in your life. A lot of us graduated in prison, and we went right back to the cell. So one of the, like the, I'm so grateful that I was allowed to uh, teach in Bard after I completed my degree, because it it gave me it gave me that space to be able to still do something and not fall into the monotony of prison and the the uh, ugliness that's there, you know. So uh, those are a few of the things I can't think of anything else except the relation between officers. And yes, the film touches on a lot of this uh, gratefully. Uh, There's officers who are very supportive of you doing your work because they recognize, if nothing else, uh, I don't have to worry about that person putting a a knife in my back or doing something to somebody else when they're in their cell studying. They're more concerned about their classes than anything in this prison. Uh, But then you also have those officers who don't have a college education or feel that because you have a college education, you have something up on them. So they... Or that you're not entitled to that. Yeah. You know, so they, you know, create scenarios and problems <clears throat> for it. But I'm, I'm quick to tell people, listen, we're not saying that prisoners should be the only one who have a college education. That should be an American right. Correction officers, whomever. I think a lot of the problems with corrections, police, whomever... Lack of education. Is related to let's get these people education. Yeah. Education shouldn't be so exclusive for a small minority of our society. Right. You know? In the film, you allude to what it felt like not to be not to be in the bar program, not to be receiving an education. What were what were things like for you before before you got into the BPI program? It was monotony. It was uh a level of of despair because there's no engagement with anything that's intellectually stimulating. Prison is a de-stimulating place. Uh, and that's, that's even with all the drugs that exist inside, you know? So for me, it was really depressing to be in an environment and could not aspire to something. So I remember, here's an example. I got my GED while I was on Rikers Island and I went upstate the Coxsackie Correctional Facility and I was just like, which I hear is one of the worst facilities. Yeah, even then, this was the early '90s. You know, it was a lot of cutting and stabbing going on in <clears throat> Coxsackie, and uh, I remember like going to the yard, watching BET, and then going back to my cell, listening to the radio. I'm like, what more is there? I read books. I almost read all the books in the library. So what I did was I was so depressed. I went to my counselor and said, I want to take the GED test again. Mind you, you know, they have these rules that says, you know, if you already have your GED, you can't take it again in the streets. I could, you know, if I was in a free world, I could, hey, let me just pay the $25 to take another GED test. Uh, But my counselor said I couldn't. You know, there wasn't college programs. They had removed college programs like a year uh, in on my bed. I, I got locked up in, well, I went upstate in 94. By 95, all the college programs were removed from prison. Right. So I remember seeing how guys were more 
more more uh, susceptible to go to the yard and just hang in the yard and do nothing. Get in the fights, work out, watch TV, nothing really constructive. So, you know, when the Bard program and others, there was a few others that came in. Bard was the only one that were that was given degrees. Um, it was others who gave college courses and credits. You gave people something to look forward to. I was looking forward to my tests. I was looking forward to completing my class. So without that, there's nothing to look forward to in prison except a visit. And I described to you how some of us even told our families, listen, I have to go through so much indignity to go on a visit. I don't want to go on a visit. So there's nothing to look forward to. And it's so monotonous day in, day out, day in, day out that providing people with some form of rehabilitation or some form of education, something that can uh, positively stimulate people is so important. Wow. Um, And you just alluded to something that made me think, man. I grew up in the 90s. And, you know, I'm just thinking about my first exposure to hip-hop was early 90s. I must have been five years old. I remember Mm -hmm. hearing Method Man Mm -hmm. um, and hearing all these songs but I remember the, the 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 album and artist that stuck out to me most that really caught my attention was like 1995. I was uh I was probably I was eight years old. 1995, yeah, I was eight, and everybody was coming to the park with the boombox and stereo. Everybody was bumping the Nas. Oh, uh, you remember that? Um, <laughs> Nas. It was written album. Yeah. And, and Sneak a, Uzi on the album yeah, yeah. Mahomie, Jack Lana. Exactly. And <laughs> all of these and then and then listening to Nas really got me into A Z. And I was just when hearing you talk about going up north in ninety four, yeah. I'm just thinking about all the music, some of the first music I ever got exposed to was oftentimes glorifying New York, New York State prison specifically yeah. during that time period. Yes, and so one you were talking about this. I wasn't even thinking about asking you this question necessarily, but how did the how what was prison culture like in that time in the mid nineties? Because in New York, and how did it ultimately evolve? Because in a lot of ways, it was glorified so much yeah. from a lot of these hip hop artists in the '90s, uh, and I would say that's far less now. Yeah, you know. Well, I want to say this. Um, I was just describing the way prison was monotonous. We felt isolated. I'm telling you, to hear Raekwon and uh, Mob Deep and Nas talk about prison, and we there, it was like, oh goodness, this is great, you know. Right. Uh, it's so amazing. We didn't take it as glorification, but we took it as a, a way in which our stories was being told because we felt we were shut out. You know, so uh, I know me and a couple of other brothers was so grateful for uh, uh, Jada Kiss to be talking about prison or whomever in a way that maybe was a bit glorifying, but nonetheless uh, kept us as part of the story because we felt we were shut out. Um, prison, but there, 
the music actually had a positive effect on the inside of prison as well because you know i remember when the purple tape came out and <laughs> everybody was like into that purple tape in prison you know people was passing it around each other we were rhyming in the yard to it and you know stuff like that so on the one hand i do agree with the notion that hip hop has a way in which it actually feeds mass incarceration you you have these themes of crime and glorification of crime that are uh uh not positive and can push people to c commit these acts and think that they're cool but nonetheless i also took the consciousness of a lot of those people you were talking about the nas the az the wu-tang they weren't just glorifying. They were basically describing a nuanced environment and the way in which people were able to keep their dignity. I think it's interesting that you say in that sense that it, it gave a voice and a perspective to something that was either not being told or largely misunderstood. And, you know? and yeah, and misunderstood is the case because keep in mind, too, that was the time when the mainstream view was lock them up, throw away the key. Right. You know, we had we were demonized and you had Nas in them putting a you know, one thing about Nas, I give him credit to. He put a, a constructive uh, approach on that uh, song. What up, kid? I know you upstate doing yeah. your bit. He showed it was a struggle that he was supporting his friend in prison. You know, the type of stuff that we needed, you know. So, you know, there is that level of support, but. In society, the mainstream politicians were like, oh, lock them up, throw away the key. Look, another one came home, but not committed thinking that. about the ripple effect. Yeah. So yeah. It, was, it was helpful for us on the inside to have a counter-narrative. How have you navigated that idea of being demonized, as you say? Because when you come out of prison, everybody isn't necessarily... It's not like all hugs and love, right? Yeah. And everybody's not necessarily on your team in terms of like your reentry and for lack of a better word accommodating that you mm -hmm. know uh, I, I would say that there's probably a lot of people that speak a good game about prison reform and helping people that are formerly mm -hmm. incarcerated but when it comes down to it they're not really down mm -hmm. so how have you navigated that space of possibly being otherized or being ostracized in some spaces because I imagine it's it's not always a seamless transition. Uh, Self-love. Simply said, I've learned to love myself and I've learned not to allow other people to uh, impact me so forcefully with their ideas of who I am. And that's not easy. That's not easy. The self-love part isn't easy either. It took me a while to get to a space where I love myself. I had to work for that. I still work for that each day. Particularly, I'm, I was a young kid who, if I'm walking down the street and a lady put her pocketbook to the other side, I, I would like take that in. I'm, I'm an empath to a degree. Like I'm like, wow, why did she do that? I didn't want to hurt her or, you know, right. I start taking all that in, that, that vibe. So I had to early on realize, yo, listen, you're taking in other people's stuff that doesn't reflect who you are as a person. And what I learned, this is also with experience. I haven't met a person who got to know me who didn't love me. So I actually approach with, if a person give me that space to really know who I am, you know, we're going to have a great relationship. So 
I navigate that through building a level of self-love and allowing people to have their impressions and not let it impact me. I love myself. You know, every day I remind myself of that, and it helps me to navigate those type of negative vibes. One, I have this is a twofold question. Why is access to mental health care such a big and important thing for people re-entering society after being incarcerated? And two, how have you navigated that space of mental health as somebody that's a formerly incarcerated individual? Well, it's... You know, having a mental health access is very important for a person getting out because of the fact that particularly people who have long-term incarceration, I think everyone, you know, because everyone is at a different mental state and can take uh, different things. And I, I like to say traumatic experiences happen if you're in prison for one day, you know, so you need something to help you deal with that. But um, it's in. When when you do long term incarceration, you kind of normalize things. I had to tell myself, don't get used to your toilet being next to your bed. And the cell is this cell toilet's right there. That's abnormal, you know. Don't get used to not being around children. You know, there's certain things that if you're not conscious of, you'll actually get into a normalized version of reality that is not reality. You know, so. Being released, for me, I'm a, again, I think BPI is a form of reentry. It helped me, you know, because it allowed me to engage stories, uh, uh, sociological papers, philosophy, <clears throat> in a way that prepared me for when I got out. But nonetheless, uh, when a person is released, it's a shocker because the social norms are totally different. You know, um, people walk around in New York in particular, they'll bump you without even saying, excuse me. That's unheard of. Yeah, you don't do that in prison. You give people adequate space so you don't have a conflict, you know. Uh, So that's one small thing. Uh, Also, the credit card thing, you know. I mean, the black community, we have been kept out of financial literacy for so long. But when you get out of prison, you have to navigate things like, getting your credit right. I remember when I first got my apartment, my first month, I had to pay rent. I forgot I had to pay the rent. <laughs> you know, I was like, whoa, I got to keep up on this if I want to live here. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't have the money. It's just that I'm so used to not worrying about those type of things. So I think it's it's, it's, it's uh, important for when a person's released to be able to uh, have access to some type of mental health uh a kid that'll help them to kind of um, filter out some of the things that they set up as norms in their life and make a transition to these new things, you know. And that's aside from the trauma. That's like just technical things about, you know, going in the store or how much do you tip. You know, that was a challenge for me. Or asking for a drink or how what's the protocol of, of going out for dinner for people. It was a lot that I had to learn. But uh, then when you're dealing with the trauma, um, I I think that there's a, uh, how would I say this? There's a twofold thing that we're going to recognize soon. And I think mass incarceration and our early engagement with it is not revealing what's going to happen. And I don't want to be like a prophecy. I'm not prophesizing, but people are coming home with not only the trauma of living in the communities we came from, but then on top of that, having that trauma aggravated from being in prison. 
It's like an additional trigger. Yeah. So now we're being released. And then there's another factor in which a prison has like these rigid gender distinctions, both men and women prisons. And you're seeing now uh, the ways in which men and women are being released and there's a tension in a formerly incarcerated population about gender. You know, for better or worse, you know, and I, I do this because I'm fortunate from the work I do. I'm, I'm around people in these social justice areas, around formerly incarcerated people, and I see there's a tension there. You know, don't get me wrong. We're working it out, but they, we have to recognize that there's a tension there. That and the tension you're talking about in, in, re, in regards to gender is like the sort of new wave of gender that our society is in? Or? No. Being in prison where there's a strictly enforced gender dynamic and coming home and not having that dynamic enforced or being in, uh, I think the example for women, women have a totally different way in which they create their structures in prison where the mother is like the leader of the house and stuff like that. But nonetheless, whatever has been the rigidly enforced there, now we're both being poured into society where what you're talking about, a new wave agenda dynamic is occurring. So a lot of us are out here like, oh, wait. So for me, uh, the first two times I was hit on in a club by a man, it was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Now I appreciate it. I'm like, nah, that's not what I do. <laughs> you know, that's not me, but right. I have no problem with it, you know, myself. But other people are coming they home. That, yeah. They don't have that. They don't understand that we're in a new world. This is normal. Nobody is trying to disrespect you or whatever. So right. I, I really think that's a, a, a dynamic that we have to uh it's very important. And how I am engaging it, I admit, I'm looking for a therapist. I have had maybe two incursions that were, weren't healthy with a therapist. One, because it was a white man. And the other one is because it was a black woman. Interesting, right? But um, why, 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 why? Well, obviously that is interesting, but what makes you sort of pay closer attention to that? Because I don't know whether it's because my interaction with black women in prison, uh, I have with the therapist I saw once a black woman, it was very rigid and commanding to a degree. And I don't know. I, I immediately felt I went through the session, but I felt like this person was my mother telling me what to do. You know, I don't know. And that's not a bad thing. But uh, I think another thing we have to uh, look out for uh, or be open to when a guy or a person or a girl is released from prison, they're used to having people force stuff on them. This is what you do. This is how you do it. This is what you do. That could trigger them. And I'm not trying to justify the fact that they're triggered, but I'm saying society could be a bit more aware of, wait a minute, just telling this person what to do isn't going to work for them. Yeah. You know, they, they've they dealt with that on the inside for how long? You know, so, I mean, of course we have to meet, but I think society have to meet us as well to say, okay, I got to be a little bit more tolerant that this might be something that could rub the person the wrong way. Uh, and, of course, with the white man, it was just like uh, I didn't felt that he could relate. to. I, I didn't want to say certain things about Brownsville or some of the conversation you and I have. And I felt like, oh, wow, how can I speak to a white person about this who grew up with privilege? Not being judgmental. Right, right. But nonetheless, it's like, how can they relate to that? Or I, there's also, I guess, a trigger in me about constantly being demonized for that. 
So all my experience, I have been demonized for that. So now I'm in a space where I'm talking about it with this uh, white man. And it's like, wait a minute, can he relate? Is that important to him? You know, or does it just sound like me complaining about having a rough childhood? What are you currently doing now that you're out? What are some of the routines that you have for yourself for self-care? Because I know you mentioned that you're not in therapy and you're still searching for a therapist. But what are you doing to maintain a healthy mental state for yourself? Oh, meditation is so important. Meditation. Um, you know, the New York Times article talked about my hot lavender baths. I love those baths. They are so relaxing. Um, uh, running, biking. I do a lot of physical exercise. But also I have two friends that I got to say uh, that I would be one of them is Andre Lewis. He was locked up to uh, that I call on whenever I'm in one of those situations. I'm like, yo, Dre, here it goes again. And he'll talk me out of it or whatever. So having great friends who, with whom I could talk about real things. It's not like we're just saying, oh, I had a situation here. I'm like, yo, Dre, we talked about how, you know, I resolved my father issue. And now this is coming up. And he does the same for me. So... Uh, having some friends who are really uh, open with me and I'm open with them has been so important. And tapping into the therapeutic circles every now and then. Uh, I love finding a, a NA or AA program that I could just walk in and just engage every now and then. Is there anything like you want to share or close out with in terms of like any any message or anything you want to share with my audience before we close out? The only thing, I, what I always tell people, you know, get proximate to the issue, you know. Find a way to, to be engaged in your own way. You know, everybody can't go into prison and teach a class. You know, we have to find our own ways to engage mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex that is relevant to you and your life that could impact other people. You can't just like say, oh, because uh, Brian Stevenson became a lawyer. I mean, listen, if we could have more Brian Stevenson, it'd be yeah. great. But I think there's work for everybody to do in regards to these issues. So get proximate. the most devastating result of the 1994 Clinton crime bill was the fact that it banned those who were incarcerated from receiving federally funded Pell Grants, which effectively removed most college education programs from U.S. prisons. The correlation between education and recidivism rates is astounding. For example, within three years of being released, two-thirds of formerly incarcerated people are rearrested, and more than 50% are incarcerated again. And data provided by the Bureau of Justice Statistics suggests that there is a 43% reduction in recidivism rates for those who partake in prison education programs. And even more revealing is that as education levels increase, the lower the recidivism rate is, 14% for those who earn an associate degree, 5.6% for those who earn a bachelor's degree, and 0% for those who obtain a master's degree. Folks love to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. The one thing that we don't talk about is how our efforts need to be focused on prevention, not intervention. We must start addressing the inequities in education much earlier on. 
because as I reflect on my conversation with Jewel, I wonder what his life trajectory would have been like had he had better educational experiences as a youngster. 